No, this is the... This is just a episode in my life. And after we uh, came up under the overpass and turned and park, you know, the next 10 minutes of my life changed my life. You know, I, uh, when I, when I opened the door and start running, um, out of that car, I was a completely different man immediately. Where, where was the car? The car was right here. Right here. Yeah. And we're just to describe it, we're in a residential uh, area. Yeah. Would you characterize this as a, as a black neighborhood? Or yeah, yeah. So of we, course, because yeah. it's surrounding a, a, a black university. Okay, we can't assume. Yeah, I know. I mean, um, yeah, we see magnolia trees. Yeah, but. Pretty well kept. So I just can't imagine, like. But a, I didn't a, notice all of that. At night, see, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to. I'm trying to uh, yeah. explain. Like it, this looks like a manicured, very well kept, quiet. Looks like the homes were probably built around the '60s or '70s. Yeah. Very, very nice. Old black neighborhood. Yeah. And so I can't imagine a drug deal going back here. So what? What do you think brought y'all to this exact corner? It's just some. Um... Close to the campus and quiet. Yeah, you know, and it, like I said, is it, it wasn't some place that. How, how did it look? Was like, predetermined. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just where we ended up. And how? And how? Um, how would you describe that night? Like, what did it look like? Feel like? Um, it felt normal. You know, it felt normal up until the point that. Um, when the altercation. Um, what about the the the? What did it? It was on? dark. It was it was dark. It was uh, October. It was chilly. Mm. And I had on a. I had on a heavy jacket. You know what I'm saying. Um, Take me into the car. Well, I mean. The most vivid thing about the car is maybe the ride. The last, <laughs> the last two hundred <laughs> of the race. You know what I mean? But yeah, I remember. I remember the ride. I remember turning in, and I remember um, silence. I remember the silence after the bang. That's what I remember. I remember the silence. And I remember the smell of gunpowder. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode one of the Free Scotty J 
documentary podcast series. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. The voices you just heard was, of course, that of my own and our central figure, Scotty. And while I am characterizing this podcast as a documentary, and Scotty is, in fact, the central figure, you'll learn pretty quickly that this podcast series sets out to ask and answer one fundamental question. What's freedom like for the formerly incarcerated? Yeah, that's the question I'm going to ask and attempt to answer, along with the host of other questions. So I want to let you know what to expect. This podcast is not a whodunit. This is not uh, a true crime story that's going to unfold week by week. What will unfold, undoubtedly, is that you're going to get to know Scotty. And you're going to get to know a lot of folk like him and people who work with the incarcerated juveniles who have made contact with the criminal justice system, so on and so forth. But what you'll really understand is that I'm trying to show you or give you an inside look into a life of someone who has a very unique journey. Now, I want to make this quite clear. Scotty and I are friends and I am not a journalist. And even though I want to establish that fact for the sake of uh, transparency, I also want to reassure you that I am approaching this as a documentarian as best as I can and being as objective as I possibly can. You'll find out quite clearly and and you'll find out really rather soon who Scotty is and what did he do. And we'll work up to that. I want to introduce you to him slowly and have him tell his story to you piece by piece so you understand him and his journey a little bit better. But I also want to, I guess, reassure you once more, I'm not trying to uh, make Scotty a sympathetic figure. No, quite the contrary. I'm just trying to add depth or uh, pull you in closer so you see what folks like Scotty go through and what their life looks like, what their lives look like. So I want you to arrive at your own conclusions about each voice you hear throughout this documentary podcast series. I'll be speaking with women. I was speaking with, with you know, workers who are on the ground in urban settings or throughout the country trying to help folk figure out what freedom looks like. And, and I also invite you all listening, if, if you have a similar story or if this story resonates with you and you have questions or perhaps, you know, a family member, like many of us do, like I do, a family member who has made contact with the criminal justice system and you have your own questions, I, I implore you to just reach out, find my contact information in the show notes um, and let's have a dialogue. Let's make this interactive. I'd like to just outline the intention of this podcast it really is near and dear to my heart after receiving a call recently from my friend Scotty and hearing where he is today in 2019 I felt it was important to have him document his journey his progress and his failures and hopefully through this exploration of his steps and his deeds he can discover or or figure out some things and perhaps he can answer that question for himself, what's freedom like for someone like him? 
So let's just start with episode one and what you'll hear. On this episode, I'm going to introduce you to Scotty. I'm going to let his words speak for it, for themselves. And you'll hear us go back in time a little bit. You'll also be hearing from a very special guest to me, <laughs> special to me, my twin brother, Terrence Gadsden. Um, I wanted to feature him in the first episode because I remember uh, around the time that I got to know Scotty, my brother uh, was working with other Scotty, so to speak. And he had a unique, a, a unique perspective that I thought he could share. His work took place in Chicago, Illinois, where he currently resides. As I mentioned earlier, this is not a true crime podcast. This is not a whodunit. And so you'll hear an extraordinary amount of candor. I didn't filter Scotty at all. And so some things might not sound polished or nuanced. And some things might sound extraordinarily um, sophisticated and mind-blowingly profound. It's just Scotty, raw and uncut. What we have done, however, is take particular care of people in Scotty's life. So I've obscured some facts that would um, expose his children or his former partners and his family. I think that's just the appropriate thing to do. Outside of that, we are extraordinarily open about the places, people, um, the, the figures in Scotty's life. And even his name, uh, of the name of the podcast, is a nickname. But if anyone lived in, in Charleston around the time that Scotty grew up or went to high school, it's pretty easy to figure out who he is. So we're not trying to hide him. We just want to make sure we protect people in his life that, you know, could be more vulnerable. Here, what I'm tr attempting to do is introduce you to Scotty and introduce you to him at a key point in his journey when he's younger so we reflect a lot in this episode what I remember the most is my penmanship because I used to try to be really really neat <laughs> were you neat like because you were writing to for like specific people or when were you what were you neat I was always neat with my um, no matter who I'm writing. You know. Open, open one. Right. So this is Littleton. <coughs> Littleton is uh, that's where I got my bachelor's degree from. What's um, was that an adult facility? Yeah, yeah, it was um actually uh, Littleton, North Carolina's in um Hornet County. That's the name of the prison, Hornet County. But. When I, <clears throat> when I went to Hornet, that's when I found out I was smart. <laughs> because of the educational programs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's when I realized that um, some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life is behind bars. You know what I mean? Open it and see, like, what your mind, what your mind was going through. Can I read a little bit of it? Yeah. Tamika. I read both of your letters, but it was the second one that really got a reaction out of me because your tone was sharp and you sounded fed up. <laughs> From now on, I should keep copies of my letters because I felt 
that I was clear about where I am, where I'm at right now. However, I respect where you're coming from. Uh, Wait, what's what's the date on this? Wow. 2004. I wonder what, I have no clue what this is about. <laughs> I have no clue. What do you... We probably we probably was arguing. You think we were arguing, arguing over Kobe? It's possible because you a hater. And you know what? It'll take me. So this is um, two pages front and back. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of long ones. It probably take me. It probably well. This this kind of like a short one. Yeah. But. It take me probably like a two hours to write like four pages because um, I think about what I want to say, you know what I mean, and I'm able to express myself really well. Uh, what What do you think about when you see all these letters? There's a lot of letters in there. So when I what I think about is damn nigga, you did a lot of damn time. You was gone for a long time. Like one of these pictures, um one of these pictures of my little brother. My little fat brother. You know, but he, he was so young. You know what I mean? And um I guess it, it also, when I look at this stuff, I, it make me realize how much time I missed too. Like uh, with fam- other family and yeah, I I, I I miss everybody, everybody's growth. You know what I mean? When I came home, everybody was grown up and doing their thing. A lot of the pictures though, are you know me, but I'm with your family. So like, it shows that a lot of visits. Yeah. <laughs> so my family, by far, um, was the most important thing to me during this process. Without them and my um, and my friends, I wouldn't have never made it. Because <clears throat> I remember vividly. When I first uh, got to prison, and the and the mailman to come around. So when the mailman come around, it's like food, you know, everybody waiting. Man, I hope somebody wrote me today. I don't. But when you first come to prison, man, I used to get like six letters every day. You know what I'm saying? And you be excited, you know. So when you get your letters, the first thing you you go you go to the microwave. Heat up your food, heat up your coffee, and go in the room and just stay in the room for hours reading. You know what I'm saying? But um, <clears throat> what about like the different facilities? Look at look at the um the some yeah we saw Lillington. Doing my time away. That's yeah. Let's do that. 
Um, so during my time away, I think I uh, I might have been in like ten prisons. Yeah, but it was a method to the madness. Yeah, why why did you move around so much? Because it made the time easier. You know what I mean? Imagine. <clears throat> was it just that, or was it? just that and imagine coming to Red Top and coming into this house and on this plot of land and you on this plot of land for five years never moving you know what I mean you might go outside you might get some fresh air but you never leave and so, um, to make my time go by faster, that's what I used to do. I just used to, I would stay at one prison for like two years, then transfer, and then stay. So I, 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 I did that. But a lot of times I was also chasing education too. So when I went to, I, I went to Lillerton to get my um, bachelor's degree. And, and bachelor's in what? Uh, business administration management and then we got one from Shelby so Shelby North Carolina Clanville <laughs> no for real but um I got my uh, welding training at um in Shelby and see that's written to me in Philadelphia so that means this was later on Cle- yeah Cleveland Correctional 2003. Oh wow! So 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 this box is um a time capsule. Are you surprised I kept them? No, cause I'm so special. So. <laughs> nah, but yeah. So <clears throat> that's Jackson, t- that's that's my um, that's the first adult prison I did time in. So when I left, when I oh, and look at the time, look at the yeah, yeah, two thousand and one, June twenty eighth, two thousand and one, Jackson, North Carolina. I went there and. Actually, it was kind of like some freedom. Uh, yeah. What, so the first facility you went to was a youth. It was a youth. It, it was a youth camp and um, like a big old daycare. And um, <clears throat> but the the crazy thing is, um, excuse me, the the youth facility was tougher than adult facility. Just try to imagine a hundred black boys, and out of that hundred, the average time might be fifteen years. And when I was in that, when I went to that facility, I was only eighteen. 
So, you young, you powerful, you angry, you really don't know what the future gonna hold. And for a lot of those guys, they didn't have the support I had. And I could not imagine doing 13 years without my family. I wouldn't have. I, I I I wouldn't be the same. So you 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 um you told me once that when you came home, your mom had a bunch of letters, and what where were they? She had it all in like a bag. She had the she had the letters. She had all the pictures, but um. So I used to travel around with my stuff, but. I got to a point where I said I'm a, I'm no longer in prison and this stuff is kind of a bondage <laughs> you, you think I should throw them away? no uh-uh. I'm glad you didn't because that's just something that I was going through at that time but now I I appreciate it because it shows my journey. This right here, Winston Salem, May twenty fourth, two thousand and six. So we already went through three pit, uh, three prisons already. What was it like making friends like me? Uh, did you make other friends outside of family that helped you get through? In prison? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like other people that would write you and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I had you. Um, my friend uh, Najma Hassan. Um, Were they family friends? Were they high school friends? Uh, me and Nas went to college together John C. Smith we were at John C. Smith together we were freshmen um, are you still friends? no I don't know what happened to Nas you know and she's no longer on Facebook so I, I don't know what's going on with her at this time but um, that really helped too you know because at one point in time I was I was angry. I was angry with my brothers. Why? Cuz I felt they abandoned me. Did they write? Every once in a blue moon. Mm. The most important thing to me was to know that I had support and love outside of my mother's support. Why? Because I knew she had my back. But it just felt like everybody else abandoned me. So, but that's a part of growing up and maturing. And Well, slow down. Did you ever talk to your brothers during your time when you were in prison about their support? Yes. Did y'all heal? Yes. I think so. Tell me how that, like. Well, I just, I was honest with them. 
because I was I was hurting and I was I really wanted some attention for my brothers however today I realized that my anger and all that stuff was being I was I was being selfish yeah that's what it was because because they had a life because I got locked up right and their life didn't stop and their life didn't stop the world don't stop just because you get locked up you know what I mean yeah I had a whole bunch of friends but it's not their responsibility to drive up and down the road every week to come see me uh to send me money because I'm the one that made the the decision to put myself in that situation. So, you know, I'm able to look back and say I'm sorry (laughs) for being young and dumb. Did they they apologize? I mean, did um, did they accept your... Did they accept your apology? Yes. Yes. And that's one thing. That's what's so great about writing letters. You know what I mean? You said you you told me once before I, that you prefer telling your story because it is so difficult a story. Mm-hmm. You said you prefer telling it via letter writing. Yeah. So when you had to kind of reconcile with your brothers or build that bridge back, what do you think the letter writing did for you? It was um, therapeutic. Um, it gave. See, here's something I realized, um, and I'm not gonna speak about other races. I'm just gonna speak about black men. We don't tell each other we love each. Other. I, I love you, brother. Mm. I'm here for you, brother. I'm your biggest cheerleader, brother. Mm. We don't, we don't, we don't say that to each other. You know what I mean? Not it, even brothers. No, it might be a, a a handshake or a bro hug, and you 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 know you got that support, but to verbally express yourself, um, the way I wouldn't want to say like women, but because the way we should, you know what I'm saying? We should we should do it, and and so when I wrote the letters. I told my brothers, you know, for the first time, I love you. You know what I mean? I I care about you and all I want um is for you to be successful. So that's when I tr- turned into a cheerleader. You know, just because me and my brothers might disagree, the one thing that they can't tell you is that Scotty ain't my cheerleader. So you, yeah, I, I think I noticed this at your at um your one brother's wedding. It was my first time seeing y'all together uh-huh. for like a celebratory extended period, and you were his best man. I, honestly, though, I was real happy to see that. Yeah. I was surprised too, but I was like happy surprised. Yeah, I, w- I was really surprised. I really, because I know how hard it was. I know how your incarceration 
was hard on him. See, I didn't know that. Real hard on him. I didn't, and that's a part of me being selfish. Because I always used to tell my mama, what he mad for? I'm the one in this motherfucker, not him. <laughs> you used to tell your mother that? All the time. Mm. But that's being selfish mm. and immature. Because he lost his brother. And if you think about it, our older brothers, our old, oldest brother was gone. And then I left. So he probably felt, he might have felt abandoned. You know what I mean? And I think he did. I think he wanted his big brother to be there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think for your little brother, yeah, that was probably tough. Because yeah. he probably looked up to you. I can't speak for him, but I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, then also, I know he's seen his mom really, really had to support you. Yeah. Um, in a way that probably just looked... Oof, really difficult for probably him to, to deal with because yeah. she was very very involved right yeah mm. yeah so did you guys end up writing more to, to one another say again did you did you and your brothers end up writing more and healing through the writing um once we got over that little sour patch <clears throat> once we got over that sour patch that's when me and my brothers became friends and that's when I, I really started loving them yeah you know what i mean when i when i came when i came home we were friends and brothers you know and that's important What's going on? What's up? What's up? How you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Thanks for making time for me. <laughs> no problem. You know I had to do it. Thank you. So, um, for those who don't know you, uh, just tell me who you are and uh, you know what you do. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm your uh, your twin brother. <laughs> uh, my name is Terrence Jasmine, um, and I sort of on the faculty and staff at North Park University here in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, and uh, what's your educational background? Um, so I have a biblical studies degree from Northern College in East Tennessee and a Master's of Divinity from Northern um, Doctor's Theological Seminary in Lombard, Illinois. Cool, awesome. Um, and so you sprung to my mind almost immediately when this idea of creating a documentary style podcast series arose, because I remember um, quite, quite vividly you and when you and I were both in undergrad, and I know you finished a year before me, um, but I remember you had a specific internship that took you from mm-hmm. t- from Tennessee, um, from the you know your campus in Tennessee to the Chicago area can you tell me about that internship that you had way back in undergrad yeah yeah so in 2002 um i on summer 2002 i had an internship at Londale christian community church on the west side of chicago first half of my internship was 
uh, interning with this, with this church at the church and learning about pastoral ministry. And the second part of the, the um, internship was working primarily with young people, youth in the community and learning how to, how to uh, mentor, how to um, preach, how to really uh, build relationships with, with those youth. And, um, and, and so it was a very, very impactful summer. I learned a lot and um, had to really rethink uh, a lot of things that I thought I knew in that, in that summer uh, and that whole process. Right. Yeah, and I think why you came to my mind um, specifically uh, regarding this podcast series was because I know you worked very closely with marginalized community uh, communities, specifically mm-hmm. um, men who dealt with um, perhaps dealt with uh, drug addiction and then reacclimating, and also men who have made contact with or who have. Uh, contact with the criminal justice system and who may perhaps were formerly incarcerated. And I wanted you to just, mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted you to share your experience about um, even at those young ages, you working with that population and also in the subsequent years, what you learned about working with men and, and women perhaps. Um, but I know you work uh, closely with the men, uh, but I want you to just share about, mm-hmm. share about your time, what you've noticed about men reentering society yeah, so like I said, the first half of my uh, internship was working with those in the in the church, and primarily um, there was a ministry called Hope House um, that still exists today. And Hope House really um, was a ministry that helped men who were incarcerated and in, 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 in society, and also those who were struggling with, with drug abuse and drug addiction. And so um, the church actually had a facility on their campus. Um, that really um that 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 was really dealing with it we really helped and trying to help men get reacclimated to society um everything from working on the gd um to helping them uh, produce a resume and just really just how to take care of their body how to how to um really get how to how to get a job and some skills um that they needed to to really be successful um i was really amazed with all the stories that in the relationships that i that I, um, that I, I was able to build. Um, and after that internship, um, and you know this, I ended up staying in the community working for that church for 12 years. So what I really, what I really, um, witnessed is a lot of men, uh, lacking hope and, and, and lacking the confidence to reenter society. And some men that I met, um, they felt like, you know, they weren't given a, a, a really, a, a solid second chance. And so some of them, um, you know, you know, we really felt hopeless, and um, I saw that. I, I saw a lot of that um, hopelessness, uh, and I saw a lot of. I, I saw a lot of brothers who had a lot of skills and, and talent that just they just needed a chance and um, just needed a job to provide for their families, provide to provide for their kids, and they weren't getting that. And so that was one thing that sh- struck me, um, and, and just the brilliance. I mean, these these men just were brilliant, and and um, just. You know, made a mistake and or didn't have the right guidance or um, you know. So that's one of the things that I really um, was struck by is just the lack of hopelessness and sometimes at times and the confidence yeah. with these young with these men. Um, and you mentioned you. I think you said Hope House, but did you mean um, Nehemiah House or was? Because I remember Hope so, House. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Hope House was uh, the, the nine month 
facility that men went to that they were, you know, either recently incarcerated or struggling with drug abuse, drug abuse or alcohol. And then Nehemiah House was a transitional house. So once the men graduated from the Hope House, they would go into the Nehemiah House. And in order to be in a Nehemiah House, you had to have a job and uh, you had to really um, show that you were working and it really helped you with your finances, you know, how to set up uh, a savings account, checking account, and um, and in, in some men who had jobs who were also working um, on the GED or, or of some of that nature. So it was really kind of a more transitional house and also holding, hold, helping brothers to be accountable to to um, um, to um, you know their their um, um, their um, promise, you know, to continue to work, and and so they had to pay rent. Um, it was kind of you just really, um, you know, really helping them to rebuild their lives, and um, you know, really they had more freedom in, in the sense of where they, you know, they didn't have to necessarily check in with the um, the leaders all the time, you know, and so um, there was a curfew and things of that nature, but really it was just helping them transition into you know, to be productive citizens. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think I, I remember when I would visit you, um, I remember uh, like Hope House events and I remember the men um, occupying certain positions, like helping as support staff. And then I remember mm-hmm. uh, men working like uh, at Lou Malnati's, the, the pizzeria and other mm-hmm. things like that. And, you know, you explaining to me what, what the men were, were going through and, and things like that. So, so I really you taking me back. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, like, so in your time, you know, you mentioned how talented these men were, and that's something that Scotty, um, Scotty shared with me in letters back in the day, and he also re- reiterated it in previous in um recent conversations. So you know, these men are brilliant. You know, they're talented. They need a chance why do you think personally in the kind of work that you do which is faith-based why why do you think it's important to support these these men and women essentially um why but why do you think it's important to support the formerly incarcerated yeah i i think it's very important um because a lot of us have been affected number one a lot of us have been affected by those who are part of the criminal justice system i mean um, some people have nephews, nieces, uncles, cousins, you know, it goes on and on. And so we're affected by it. We're affected by those who, um, who have been in, 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 uh, in prison. Um, and I think, you know, even for those who are of faith and Christian background, I think it's our duty to, um, um, we are, you know, though, especially if you believe we're, we're creating an image of God and, and that we're all brothers and sisters. I think we, we, um, when we look in the scriptures, we see that there's a certain, certain standard that we're, we're, we're to take and to just caring for those who are sick and shut in or those who've been in prison. Um, we are to love, we're to help restore. And I think throughout the scriptures, you see, um, God choosing to restore people rather than, um, you know, to punish people. So the, the restoration, um, is very important to restore people, to help them, um, to get them acclimated. I think that's very biblical, very important. And I think if, if Christians will look a little deeper in their Bible, they'll see, and people like Paul the Apostle, who actually was writing some of his letters in the New Testament from prison, uh, and telling people, encouraging people while he was in chains um, to to continue um, to, to keep fighting, keep living and living right. And there were people who would, you know, come and visit him and, and give him food and things of that nature. Um, and I think there's another passage 
in Micah, in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, uh, talks about, you know, justice uh, and righteousness and what that requires from all of us. And so I think it's, 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 it's both practical and biblical, and uh, we, we definitely need to rethink how we look at the, the, uh, um, the justice system. Um, and I think proximity is very important. When you have relationships with people that you personally know, um, that have been affected and who have been in the criminal justice system, your, your perspective changes. And I think so many, so many people don't have friends or family or relationships with those who, who have been affected uh, by the criminal justice system. And I think so proximity is very important. It's very, very, very important. That's what I learned when I was working with these men. It's like, yo, these are real people. Um, they have real families and they're, and it, we built real relationships. And um, and we all are not perfect. We've all fallen short. We've all messed up. We've all missed the mark. And so I, I think um, if we can examine our own lives, our own self, we can say, hey, yo, we, we, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our fellow brother or sister to help them and to, um, to, to, to with skills, with talents, resources, anything we have um, so they can be a better person in society and life. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because I think that's the that's one of the fundamental questions I'm, I'm asking throughout this podcast is what do you do at when, when they've served their time or when they've um, when maybe they're on paper, mm-hmm. you know, they're on papers, but they're out uh, in our in our neighborhoods. What do you do? You do you do you throw them away? Do you continue to punish them? And, and the way our, our system is set up, you know, we see that it's real. It's a really tough hurdle to, to overcome. And yeah, I think. Uh, restorative measures, restorative justice, and um, you know, uh, you know, other measures like you say, proximity and building relationships. I think that's that's part of the tools that we need to to employ to help, uh, mm-hmm. you know, help these folk, you know, overcome. Well, I, I really appreciate this perspective, and though I'm I'm not in faith work, I really appreciate the 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 biblical. Uh, perspective you gave because I think there's a lot to learn um, from that text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thank you so much for sharing. This is this is dope. <laughs> yeah, I thank you for for you know highlighting this this subject. It's very important, and I think uh, you know I, I, I'm 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 one of those uh, individuals that are really trying to help people rethink whether you're a faith a person of faith or not. Just rethink um, you know the, the criminal justice system. And to open people's mind up and help them to to unlearn and relearn um, what's really happening in our in our, in our society. And so, um, thank you for you know talking about this. And you know, shout outs to all those who are fighting. You know, social justice leaders and people who are really fighting and trying to really educate the masses on this very, very important topic. So, appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for riding with me on episode one of the Free Scotty J Podcast. I really hope you are getting to know the central figure. Please remember, we'll be featuring um, a plethora of voices throughout this series to examine and explore restorative justice, criminal justice, and prison abolition work. If you have any questions or if you want to share your own personal story, please find my email or social media contact information in the show notes. I'd love to make this podcast a collaborative effort involving the entire community. Until next time, stay free.